Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm Ross Douthat. I'm David Leonhardt. And this is The Argument. This week, the White House is strongly defending President Trump's declaration of a national emergency on the U.S.-Mexico border. Is Donald Trump a national emergency? And what's happening with Trump is that he's got his, his fingers on the burner and he keeps twisting the knob in random directions. Then, Amazon is pulling out of Queens. Is that a good thing? You want to come to New York City? Well, so does the rest of the world. Get a number. And finally, a recommendation. I hear the same thing over and over and over again, that I just have to read it. And so I will. Last week, President Trump finally did what he'd been threatening to do for weeks. He declared a national emergency to fund a wall on the U.S.-Mexico border. We're talking about an invasion of our country with drugs, with human traffickers, with all types of criminals and gangs. Democrats and even some Republicans condemned the move, calling it an unconstitutional abuse of his authority. Sixteen states are now suing to block the declaration. This whole fight plays into one of the big questions that Ross, Michelle, and I have about Trump. Is he a frightening authoritarian president or a flailing incompetent president? And I must say, the national emergency pushes me toward the incompetent option. It's still not clear that the wall will ever be built, or if it is, that it will really affect immigration policy. Trump doesn't have anywhere near unified Republican support on it either. So I take this as another sign of Trump's weakness. And Michelle, I'm wondering if you think I'm being too blasé. You know, I go back and forth, right? You said, like, is he a frightening authoritarian or a flailing incompetent? Um, or I don't remember the exact language. But I, th I think the answer is both. And when you look at other countries that have undergone this transformation from liberal democracy to authoritarianism, you know, it doesn't happen all in one fell swoop. And it often happens over a period of years. So on the one hand, it seems like Trump is too weak and kind of disengaged from the details of governing to actually institute this transformation. At the same time, he has hollowed out a lot of the government. He has normalized kind of authoritarian rhetoric that used to be unprecedented. And he has normalized, I think, this sort of like extra legal mode of governing. And so, you know, part of what's happened with Trump, and we talk about this all the time, is this frog in a pot phenomenon where actions that would have created a huge amount of shock and, and outrage a year ago or two years ago, we now sort of have become inured to. And so everybody rolls their eyes when, for example, he accuses the former acting director of the FBI of treason. And so while this emergency declaration maybe isn't that scary, it's going to make it that much easier for him to do the next one. And the next one might be in circumstances that are a lot more alarming. I want to take Michelle's metaphor and suggest something a little different with it, which is that basically 
over the course of multiple presidencies, when it comes to executive power and what we call the imperial presidency, we've been in a kind of boiling the frog situation where you had this immense consolidation of executive power over foreign policy and national security after 9-11 that George W. Bush pushed and then Barack Obama basically embraced. And then you had and a substantial expansion checked by the courts in various ways of presidential power over domestic policy pushed by Obama in his second term around health care and climate policy and immigration. So that was, that was sort of the frog being boiled slowly. And what's happening with Trump is that he's got his, his fingers on the burner and he keeps twisting the knob in random directions. And so the heat keeps flaring up and the frog keeps jumping around even though the water isn't necessarily getting hotter. Is this, this may be a terrible metaphor. So, but, but what I'm trying to say is that I think the real danger here, the more plausible danger, is that you have really politically effective presidents who make power grabs that work. And what Trump is doing is sort of exposing how that works by being really crude and ridiculous about it. And I think it's actually weakening the imperial presidency in various ways and making an authoritarian scenario less likely than it would be under a more sophisticated future imperial president. And you think that's a danger? I, I, think, that, I think that the danger over the long run is basically that American democracy, the constitutional system, is devolving into this order with a vestigial legislature that doesn't really do anything and an executive that claims more and more power because nobody else is claiming that power and then ends up getting in endless fights with the Supreme Court. And I think that dynamic has continued under Trump. I just think it's more overt and transparent and crude and so people are much more aware of it and Trump is, isn't as good at doing what Bush and Obama did, cloaking his power grabs in sort of you know, consensus-oriented rhetoric and so on. And so people are just more aware of what's actually happening. One of the fundamentally frightening things about this wall declaration is that it's based on a racist lie. And you know, this is sort of a um, hallmark of authoritarian governments is that they both, you know, kind of make up lies and then create government policies to instantiate those lies. And that's very, very different from Obama going around Mitch McConnell to establish DACA. And that actually is my number one fear here, which is, I agree with you, Michelle, this is based on a racist lie. And there's another court case which is similar. It's the attempt to add a question to the census about citizenship status, in which the administration's lies have now been documented in federal court. And I do worry a little bit about this idea that the president makes up some lie, and then the courts feel some need to say, well, we'll meet you halfway. That That is my one fear but so, here. I mean, again, this I think this is a really interesting question, right? Because I, I agree that Trump is a more transparent and flagrant liar than any normal president would be. And that is a big change. At the same time, it's not clear to me how you – why it's more worrisome to have a president who tells big flagrant lies and then when he can't get the funding he wants from Congress, appropriate some extra funding to build a few more miles of fencing along the Rio Grande or in that – in the border area. Why is that more terrifying than a president who basically says, I can just ignore Congress and launch military interventions overseas without congressional authority, which is what Obama did in Libya. Like, I, I mean, I, I understand why the lies are more frightening, but at the same time, the actual policies are a much bigger deal.
But I guess I feel, and I, Michelle, I assume you agree, that when presidents are dealing in reality, as Obama did, it's quite different from when they're making up an emergency and trying to do it. So to me, it's not so much the length of the fence he's building. It's that he is inventing out of whole cloth a security crisis on the border and trying to do something to respond to that for political reasons. Whereas you are really upset that Obama overreached on climate. But Obama wasn't making up climate change when he pushed the boundaries of his executive authority. And I, and I, I sort of don't think you can ignore that distinction. Yeah, it's whether this is just a sort of pretext to, again, instantiate his hallucinatory vision of the world. And the I mean, part of our fundamental difference here is that, you know, my feeling is that the threat to American liberal democracy has come not just from Trump, but from the Republican Party writ large. And so to me, Barack Obama was responding to a broader breakdown in the Republican Party's willingness to let non-Republicans govern. You know, I just I don't think you can blame Barack Obama for claiming unilateral power, or at least I wouldn't blame Barack Obama for kind of claiming whatever unilateral power he could when you are when you saw Republicans who had basically decided that Democrats don't have the right to govern and they are going to do anything that they can to stop Democrats from governing. But but that is literally the argument for like Julius Caesar crossing the Rubicon, right? Like it's it's not Caesar's fault that the Senate is this nest of corruption and vice that unfairly wants to prosecute him when he was just fighting wars for the glory of Rome. And so he has no choice but to march on the Capitol. And I, I want to be clear just to be more provocative still. There is a case there, right? Like there is an argument that in fact the evolution of the imperial presidency is just necessary, right? That like America is not really a republic anymore. We really are just an empire. You need a president who can declare national emergencies willy-nilly and so on because that's the only way anything ever gets done and the legislature basically exists – should exist as like a mild check on executive overreach. Um, No, I'm not going down that road with you, right? I'm not making that argument. I'm making this argument against treating the two parties and their obstructionism and their sort of willingness to subvert norms of liberal democracy. I think that there's no argument for treating them as symmetrical. And so, you know, again, because I think that the Republican Party itself has become this authoritarian, illiberal, anti-democratic movement, you know, I place most of the blame for the breakdown in sort of the separation of powers with them. So I want to think about this in the context of another headline this week, which is that Andrew McCabe, the former deputy FBI director, has admitted that he and his colleagues at the Justice Department talked about using the 25th Amendment to remove President Trump from office. And Trump is fired back by accusing of McCabe and accusing his own deputy attorney general, Rod Rosenstein, of treason, which is kind of amazing, his own deputy attorney general. So, Ross, I know on some level you really do think Trump is different from Obama or Bush. I mean, you wrote a column. I endorse uh, endorse treason. You endorse the McCabe option, as it were. So are you still there? Do you still think that the 25th Amendment in which the cabinet and vice president vote to remove the president uh, should be something that's on the table? Well, I think that there's the argument there actually flows from what I was just sort of 
provocatively saying to Michelle, right, which is that the more imperial the presidency becomes, the more important it is that the man who actually holds that immense power is sort of at least semi-competent to exercise it. And so that that would be the sort of the Caesarist case for using the 25th Amendment to remove ineffective Caesars. But I have a lot of sympathy for whatever was going through McCabe's mind and other people in the Justice Department because obviously I was writing this, you know, consider the 25th Amendment column around that time. And that was in the first couple months of Trump's administration when there was this period when everything was chaos and then he fired Comey, which was an objectively kind of insane thing to do and obvious at the time. It created the whole Mueller investigation basically. And then he was – it looked like he was about to fire Sessions and to me at that moment, he gave the appearance of a man incapable of exercising the office of the presidency. Now, here we are two years later and I think it's clear that as unfit as he remains – People around him, like he didn't fire Sessions, right? He hasn't fired. He hasn't tried to well, fire Mueller. He hasn't. Well, he, he he did fire Sessions. He fired him in a normal sort of after eighteen months, you know, get a replacement lined up kind of way, rather than in this sort of insane cascading behavior way. So I think it. I, I think there's evidence from the last two years that people around Trump have been able to restrain and channel him in ways that strongly weakens, if you will, the argument for removing him via the 25th Amendment. I wouldn't write the column in the same way today. But this is like a classic sort of frog in the pot argument, right? Because everything that people were afraid of happening at that moment happened. It just took longer than people anticipated, right? So he has sort of defenestrated all of the leadership of the FBI and many of the intelligence agencies, you know, it's taken him longer, but he has slowly removed all of these possible checks on his power. You know, Rod Rosenstein is about to leave. We have this new attorney general, William Barr, who is now refusing to recuse himself and whose kind of previous claim to fame was the role he played in the pardon of various people who'd been convicted for their role in Iran-Contra, right? So we're we're getting to the point where he's kind of creating this structure of impunity. It's just that rather than taking a few months, it's taken a couple of years. I guess I think that when it comes to the 25th Amendment, which is, again, for listeners who don't know, a mechanism to remove the president for incapacity, there is actually a big difference between the scale of chaos involved in those first few months and where Trump is now. I think where Trump is now having removed some of the obstacles to his power, if he then does proceed to do things like fire Mueller or anything else like that, then the mechanism in response, the natural mechanism would be impeachment, not the 25th Amendment, because his behavior would suggest a man who is sort of in control of his own actions just in a malign way, if that distinction makes sense. So so I I think even if Michelle's worst case scenario is right, then we aren't in 25th Amendment territory, we're in impeachment territory. Let's end where we started with the wall. What do you each think is actually going to happen? Are the courts going to block the wall or let some version of it go through? Michelle? You know, I think that we have gotten really used to kind of relying on the courts to check Trump's authoritarian impulses. But one thing that's been happening over the last two years has been the transformation of the courts, including, you know, putting Kavanaugh, who has shown himself to be a total partisan hack, um, onto the Supreme Court. And so, you know, who knows? I mean, hopefully Chief Justice Roberts will want to maintain some sort of institutional legitimacy 
But I think that that institutional legitimacy is less and less of a safeguard with each new um, judge who's confirmed. Ross? I think Trump does a little bit of building under his claims of power under existing law. The emergency declaration is still being litigated in the courts when Bernard Sanders is sworn in as the next president of the United States. <laughs> and obviously, part of part of that is what Trump wants, right? Clearly, Trump wants the wall to campaign on in 2020. And so he wants to both be able to say he's made progress on it, but also that he's been stymied enough that, that he needs to be reelected in order to to finish the wall. Finish the wall is the new slogan, yes. Okay, we will leave it there. No doubt we'll be coming back to a bunch of these related topics, including what William Barr does as attorney general, because I think the way he decides to oversee the Mueller investigation, as as both of you mentioned, is going to be one of the really big questions for the beginning of his term. We're going to take a quick break right now, and we will be back to talk about Amazon and New York City. If you had more time in the day, would you take a nap, read a book, talk with a friend? When something's important to you, it's easier to make time for it. Therapy can help you decide what matters most. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on your schedule. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com opinion today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com opinion. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I absolutely love Spelling Bee. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. We're back, and now we're going to talk about Amazon. The company announced last week that it was abandoning its plans to build a major office complex in Long Island City, Queens. The company abruptly announced it's pulling out after growing opposition from some lawmakers, union leaders, and activists. Amazon decided that it would be too difficult to deal with the progressive politicians and activists in New York who were criticizing the corporate subsidies that the company received to come to the city. Those progressives, not surprisingly, have been celebrating Amazon's decision. But many other people are worried that New York has needlessly damaged its own economy by scaring away Amazon. Joining us to talk about Amazon this week is Mara Gay, our colleague in opinion, who writes about New York for the Times editorial board. Mara, welcome back to The Argument. Thanks for having me. So help us understand particularly why the Times editorial board was quite disappointed by the outcome here. Sure. So... We actually weighed in twice, first when the the deal was immediately announced, saying that the deal was not a good deal. We didn't think that there was enough public input and that Amazon didn't actually give the city enough of what it needs in terms of infrastructure and transit needs. But the decision by Amazon last week, the very abrupt decision to, to pull out of New York, was very disappointing. And... We felt that the city was hostile and inhospitable to even having a conversation with Amazon about how to make the best deal that we could get over the next year. There was supposed to be a year-long process. 
by which the city and the state and Amazon, the company, would sit down and they would hammer out the details of how to get the best out of the deal for all sides. And that never happened because there was a lot of kind of grandstanding by some local elected officials who felt that they had been cut out of the deal. And a lot of them also are are newly elected progressives who felt that they didn't think this really wealthy company should get these huge incentive packages in general. And they had a lot of problems with the fact that the deal was done kind of in secret behind closed doors and then presented to the public with no input. And we were sad to see 25,000 jobs go. We could have had a productive conversation and that didn't happen. So I agree there was grandstanding and some of it was silly, right? It was basically capitalism is evil. And I agree that the 25,000 jobs would have helped Queens. And yet I still found myself cheering this because I think this whole game in which companies hold up local governments, which is really taxpayers, for these subsidies, it's just terrible economic policy. It doesn't do anything to grow the economy. It just um, has cities bidding against each other. And so even if New York takes a modest hit, and it's only modest, it's 25,000 jobs in a city that has 4 million jobs, I guess I think there's a larger principle here. And that's if cities are starting to get a little bit more aggressive about saying no to companies that try to hold them up. I'm really pleased about it. And I I think New York did the country a favor here. You know, I hear you. I think, though, that there was a projected $27 billion in revenue from this deal over 20 years. Now, even if half of that had materialized, that's money that we could have used as a city to pay for and address just massive infrastructure needs. We need to fix the New York City subway. We need to build housing. And I actually think that had the governor and the mayor Uh, who really brokered this deal, had they, along with Amazon, presented this agreement along with a commitment to address the subway crisis and the housing crisis, could have been, for example, I don't know, a bill, let's say Amazon gives a gift of half a billion for housing and half a billion for the subway, and then the governor commits to spending, you know, half of the projected 27 billion revenue over many years to direct it toward those issues, I think we would be having a very different conversation. But I think that not only are corporations out of touch, but I think that public officials, and in this case, specifically Governor Cuomo and Mayor de Blasio, are extremely out of touch about what people are very concerned about. I mean, New York New York City doesn't have a jobs problem. It has an income inequality problem. It has a wages problem. Mario, so given that, weren't all those people right to be angry, Um, right? Because these things that you were talking about, these commitment to use some of that revenue to fix the subways or to address affordable housing, they weren't in the plan. And so there was obviously going to be some winners from this proposal. And, you know, one of the things that's been interesting to me is seeing the kind of anger of some of the local public housing tenants association that, you know, wanted this plan and thought there was a lot in it for them. But a lot of other people, right, they had reason to believe that they were going to be priced out of their neighborhood. They had reason to believe yeah. that the subways were going to become even more unbearable. And I think people who are maybe outside New York City, one of the things I don't know how much it filters through is how the kind of complete breakdown of the reliability of subways has completely changed the texture of daily life in this city. In my own neighborhood, there has been 
such a lack of investment in like new schools and all sorts of civic infrastructure that you need when there's an influx of new people. You know, my son didn't get into our zoned kindergarten, for example. And so people who live there have real reason to believe that they're going to be the losers from this influx of really highly paid new jobs, which aren't necessarily going to them. And this is coming with no guarantee that this money is going to go back into the community or back into infrastructure. Yeah, I think so. Those are all great points. And I share a lot of those concerns, to be frank. But the process was just beginning. So those were things that we could have addressed through a state land use process over the next year to year and a half. And I think people didn't realize that because the deal was done behind closed doors in the middle of the night and was presented to the public. And then the governor essentially said, here you go. Why aren't you thanking us? And very quickly, it was clear that they had all everyone involved had misjudged what the appetite was here and what the concerns really are. But I have to say that my disappointment was the really gross financial illiteracy in the city and in the state around this notion that we were giving Amazon $3 billion as though we were going to hand them $3 billion in cash, even though it was you know, a tax benefit. So people on Twitter were saying, well, now we can use $3 billion to the subway instead, you know, and they're cheering. And that's not quite how it would have worked, right? I don't want to overstate it, but I do think we should definitely think more as a city and a state about how to be friendlier to business, but also how to negotiate with them to make sure that we're getting what we need as a state and city. There's, I think there's a real fascinating parallel between sort of where a lot of especially newly elected progressive politicians are with this stuff and where a certain kind of like Tea Party activist was on the right um, like eight or nine years ago, right, where you, you have this dynamic where you have people newly elected who are making arguments effectively against crony capitalism that mix a kind of sincere civic mindedness with a certain kind of economic illiteracy, right? I think that was sort of present in the Tea Party in spades. And what's interesting is to read, like I've been reading a lot of the conservative critiques of Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. You know, she's always the lightning rod, but also, you know, some of the other anti-Amazon politicians. And these critiques, you know, the conservatives are sort of having a field day making fun of how anti-corporate socialists drove Amazon out of New York. But if this had been some Tea Party legislator who was killing some similar deal in a red state, uh, those same conservatives would have been cheering it and a lot of center-left pundits would have been like, oh, look at those Tea Party activists in red states or, you know, they're shooting them, their own economies in the foot once again. And I don't really have a point, but I think I <laughs> exactly. But I think, <laughs> no, but I, think no. that... <laughs> I, I think there's a little bit of um, strange bedfellows and a lot of kind of interesting philosophical debates going on. But I also think something that has gotten missed by, I would say, mainstream Democrats is that locally speaking, a lot of the politicians in New York who came out against this deal most vociferously, these are people who were actually put into office by gentrifiers, by millennials, by middle class and upper middle class, highly educated voters who were upset about Trump, but also are, you know, oftentimes, like myself, frankly, millennials who are 
really drawn to big cities like New York, but who can't really afford to live there. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is the perfect example of this. She wasn't elected by uh, the poorest folks in her district, although some of them voted for her, but, but by these gentrifiers. And so my point is that I think that politicians have underestimated the anxiety about that group of people, which is large, which is growing, which is pretty powerful when they vote. And those are the politicians that now represent them. I mean, the house I grew up in is in Prospect Heights in Brooklyn, and I could never afford to live there. It's now a bed and breakfast. (laughs) Okay, Um, It's pretty wild. So we can't afford to live in the neighborhoods or the cities that we grew up in. But it was this deep anxiety about where people are going to live who aren't rich but who also don't live in public housing. I have a friend who's paying $1,600 a month for a one-bedroom in Astoria, and she was terrified of Amazon coming because she can't afford $3,000 a month, which is what she figured it would be, and I don't think she's crazy. And so that kind of anxiety about affordable housing and about the subway is so real, and I think no one in the state certainly not the governor and the mayor, have really understood the depth of that and how that affects people's lives. And that's partially because they don't ride the subway, which is another story for another time. One of the most interesting pieces that I read on this was in Wired by Zachary Carabell, in which he argued that Amazon will live to regret this. And that if you look at the populist strains that we're talking about from really right, center and left, These tech companies are going to have to grapple with those strains because there are a lot of frustrated people out there. And this was an opportunity to do so. And Amazon's just in the long term not going to be able to say, oh, we might have to get our hands dirty. We're out of here. I agree. And one of my frustrations with this initial deal is Amazon came into New York City, New York City, and said, we're going to offer you $5 million for workforce development. (laughs) I just found that I said, you know, and no offense to Kansas, but this is not Kansas. And I have a feeling that, you know, you want to come to New York City. Well, so does the rest of the world. Get a number. Pay your full share. (laughs) Um, I think a lot of people felt that way. Um, So I think there was a sense by some of, hey, since when do we beg people to come to New York? And that's a larger conversation that's happening nationally. But I hope that there is going to be less hand-wringing, less grandstanding, and more thoughtfulness about how to attract the right employers, the right businesses. We don't want to treat everyone the way that we treated Amazon before the city council. We we want to get better deals out of companies. But what does that look like, and, and how do you have those conversations? Well, Mara, you mentioned de Blasio and Cuomo, and even for people who are sympathetic to their criticisms of Amazon, it seems quite clear they didn't handle this well. And I do really think there's a big opportunity for politicians on both the right and the left, but particularly the left, who can kind of channel the unhappiness out there, but do it in a more productive and skilled way than they managed to do in this case. I think that's right. If nothing else, the the governor and the mayor learned some lessons here. You can't just shove these deals down people's throats. Well, Mara, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. (laughs) 
Now it's time for our weekly recommendation. Each week we give you a recommendation that helps take your mind off the day-to-day headlines. And this week it's my turn to make a recommendation. My recommendation is not exactly a secret because it's been the best-selling book in America for the past three months, um, but it is Michelle Obama's memoir. More particularly, it is the first half or two-thirds of her memoir. The last half is interesting if you're a political junkie, but it's this kind of memoir we're used to from political figures. The first half is is really quite incredible. It's extremely honest about her marriage to her husband, Barack, about them going through couples counseling. Um, it's full of these really incredible stories. But but the main takeaway I had was really about the power of education. We're living in this time where I think some people on both the right and the left are skeptical of education. And it's just really clear from this book that education is is the engine that changed Michelle Obama's life. And there's one anecdote I want to tell, which is she was learning piano. And she was learning it on a broken piano uh, from a piano teacher in her low-income neighborhood. But for her first recital, she had to go play a non-broken piano. And she sits down at the piano and she realizes, wait a second, I I don't actually know how to play a non-broken piano. I only have experience playing a piano with chipped keys. And I need to figure out how to play this normal piano. And the book is full of anecdotes like that that just give you a sense of what life is like in neighborhoods like the south side of Chicago and how people like Michelle Obama once in a while managed to overcome that. You know, I don't know why I haven't read this book yet. And part of it is that it still breaks my heart every time I contemplate kind of what we had then in the White House to what we have now, that I should kind of be eager to, you know, be reminded of this these better people in this better time. But there's something about it that I've been just like felt resistant about. It's like reading like a memoir by your parents who died or something. And yet I hear the same thing over and over and over again that I just have to read it. And so I will. It sounds really interesting. I haven't read it because I don't read any books written by politicians or in this case first ladies because I they've gotten very long and the ratio of time it takes to read them versus what you get out of them is um, not not a good ratio I'm curious if this do you think this is the exception like do you have you read a lot of other recent politicians books David or is this sort of did you make an exception for for the former first lady I made a partial exception. The the other best reason, I normally don't read them, but the other really good one I read, I know he's now somewhat discredited on both the right and the left, but Tony Blair's memoir is fantastic. Um, I would say that the parts of this book that are classic political memoir are fine. <laughs> and if you don't enjoy reading classic political memoir, I wouldn't encourage you to read those parts of Michelle Obama's book. I would basically encourage you to pick it up and read the parts until Obama gives his speech at the 2004 Democratic <laughs> Convention. It's a good and if line, you want to yeah. keep going, great. <laughs> the rest of the book is perfectly is perfectly good. But the part up to there is really fantastic. And Michelle, I, I know what you mean, but it actually is possible for little sections to forget that until recently, this was the first lady of the United States and, and just kind of focus on this incredible American story that that is her life. So that's my recommendation. Start Michelle Obama's memoir, Becoming, and finish it if you want to. Last week in our segment about Brexit, we presented you with the three major options on Brexit, and we asked you to choose among them. 
Some of you called in and told us which one you'd pick. Here's what you had to say. Hey, my name is Anne. I'm calling from Oregon. Hi, this is Armin. I'm calling from Irvine, California. Walter Nicklin. My name is Jerome Alexander. My vote, if I were Britain, would be to hold another vote using ranked choice voting. Revote would be the best option from what I heard on the podcast. I think it's clear we need to uh, have a, another vote. Soft Brexit, it is. I think that a second referendum is the right choice because, as one of the guests mentioned, the British people did, did not have all the necessary um, information about what actually Brexit means. And that's my opinion. I always enjoy the show. Bye. Thanks. That's our show for this week. If you have thoughts or if you have a question or suggestion for a future episode, please leave us a voicemail at 347-915-4324. You can also email us at argument at nytimes.com. If you like what you hear, we'd love it if you would leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. This week's show was produced by Alex Laughlin for Transmitter Media and edited by Lacey Roberts. Our executive producer is Greta Cohn. We had help from Tyson Evans, Phoebe Lett, Ian Prasad Philbrick, and Francis Ying. Special thanks to Kaiser Health News. Our theme was composed by Allison Layton Brown. And a final tip if you want to hear more about Michelle Obama's memoir, listen to the episode of our sister podcast, Still Processing, that is called Becoming, the title of Michelle Obama's book. See you next week. I mean, look, Ross and Michelle agree on everything. They just pretend otherwise for the sake of the This is actually true. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.